Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. At the center of a trademark dispute at the Supreme Court was a chewable dog toy mimicking the iconic Jack Daniels bottle, but with poop jokes. So perhaps it was inevitable that there would be quips, laughter, and confusion. Here's Justice Samuel Alito asking the attorney for Jack Daniels, Lisa Blatt, whether any reasonable person would think the whiskey company had approved the use of its trademark on the dog toy. A reasonable person would not think that Jack Daniels had approved this. I think if you're selling urine, you're probably going to win on a motion to, I mean, on a 12B6. But you're probably also violating some state law. But sure. The, no, no, it does, you're not selling urine. It's exactly oh, this you, oh, toy. I'm sorry, I thought it was. No, no it's, it's exactly it's, it's this toy. Urine. I'm sorry. Which purportedly <laughs> contains some oh. sort of dog excrement oh, I'm or sorry. urine. Okay, my bad. Justice Alito, I don't know how old you are, but you went to law school. You're very smart. You're analytical. You have hindsight bias. And well, I went to a law school where I didn't learn any law. So no. Okay, but... By the way, that was a diss of Yale Law School. Jokes aside, the issue was whether the dog toy, which includes references to old number two and 43% poo by volume, is entitled to First Amendment protection as a parody of the whiskey. But Justice Elena Kagan didn't get it. In this case... What, what, what is there to it? What is the parody here? The parody? Yeah. The parody is... I, I, of... I, maybe I just have no sense of humor, but... <laughs> What's the parody? My guest is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Terry, so many of the Supreme Court arguments are so weighty, so heavy, but not this one. I mean, the humor at times seemed to sink to the level of the dog toy here. And this is a case we've been waiting for. So, Terry, did it meet your expectations? I thought the actual argument, particularly from the um, Solicitor General's office, was particularly good and cut through a lot of the uh, murkiness and went straight to the heart of the issue. I thought the tone of the questioning did, as you describe it, descend a little bit into the gutter. For reasons I can't explain, over about a year, year and a half now, this court with its new makeup seems to be unable to approach intellectual property cases without using a raft of examples, many of which are sort of ludicrous and really don't advance the ball much. But that has been the name of the game in intellectual property cases. You know, you go to the Supreme Court to argue one of those, and you better be prepared for a bunch of rather silly examples being tossed at you. And that's how this hypothetical works, now that hypothetical works. Let's just talk about the very, very basic. What does trademark ownership protect a company from? Trademark ownership is actually, in the first instance, intended to protect consumers 
And this is a fundamental mistake that many lay people make, is that they think it's a protection for the corporate owner. But the protection originates in the concern in previous centuries over consumers being victimized by having counterfeit goods passed off as being legitimate goods from a known producer of that good. And so that's the genesis, this need to protect the consumer from being victimized by having goods passed off that aren't what they're supposed to be. Now, the law has expanded beyond that in the last 100 years, and it also provides protections for the company that owns the trademark in a doctrine called trademark dilution, and this is statutory. It simply says that you cannot use a trademark of another person in such a way as to dilute the reputation or the quality of that mark. And so one of the things that the court struggled with here was their failure to grasp that in the complaint, the lawsuit at the district court, there were multiple causes of action. It was not a straight-up trademark infringement case. It was both a trademark infringement case and a trademark dilution case, and that there are different tests that apply to each. And the district court found in favor of the trademark owner, and both found that there was trademark infringement and trademark dilution. And that seemed to be confusing to the justices. What is the main issue as the justices saw it? I mean, I heard a lot of trademark rights versus free speech rights. What did you hear? It's a great question, June, because part of the problem here is that the Supreme Court, when it granted the writ of certiorari, in other words, when it agreed to review the decision that came out of the Ninth Circuit, it was a little bit cryptic as to what it believed the issue presented for review was. And so you and I had a conversation at that time, I believe it was last November, in which we discussed this. And we said, well, there's multiple possibilities as to what the court could be concerned about. The court could be concerned about whether or not there should be a Rogers test. It might not want the Rogers test to be stated exactly the way Second Circuit stated it. It may want a different test. It may have other concerns. It may have a First Amendment concern. It may want something completely different from Rogers to protect First Amendment interests. So we went into this argument a little bit confused as to exactly what the issue the court thought it was going to decide, and we came out of the oral argument not knowing much more. (laughs) There are probably three themes that emerged from the oral argument that tell us something. The first theme is... Should the court adopt the Rogers test or jettison the Rogers test? And this was one of the things we talked about in the past, June, as to whether that was on the table here. And given the strong support across multiple circuit courts and in the academic community for the Rogers test, we had speculated that maybe that's not even on the table here. They may want to refine it. They may want to officially adopt it. Because remember, the Supreme Court has never, ever confronted the Rogers test. It's never said the Rogers test is valid. It's never said the Rogers test is not valid. This is the first time it's ever considered the Rogers test. And we now know from the oral argument that whether or not the Rogers test continues to be valid is on the table in this appeal. Indeed, Justice Thomas came straight out four minutes into the argument and asked that question. And he asked it in multiple different ways over the course of the argument. To his credit, he did not take uh, mishy-mashy answers. He didn't accept those. He kept insisting, I want to know what your position is. Is Rogers good or is it not good law? So that's the first theme. Does Rogers survive this uh, appeal? 
The second theme that came out of the oral argument is, well, if we abandon Rogers, how do we protect against First Amendment concerns? And the First Amendment was a very central theme here. Uh, and that's in large measure a product of the heavy amicus curiae briefing alerting the court to the First Amendment issue and expressing concern about protecting First Amendment rights. The third issue was sort of a lesser of the three issues, was how do we protect parodists, people who are engaged in parroting trademarks? How do we protect them from having their parodies chilled in the first place, from never ever producing the parody because they may be facing expensive litigation? In other words, as I believe Justice Kagan put it, how do we make available a shortcut for such a person to get out of an expensive litigation early on, right after the lawsuit is filed? And that was also a theme that came out. And again, was the product largely of the amicus curiae briefs, who argued very strenuously that there has to be some concern given to legitimate parody and protecting it against the chilling impact of well-heeled trademark owners engaged in trademark bullying, i.e. filing lawsuits against everybody who attempts to undermine their trademark. Does a parody have to be good? Because Justice Elena Kagan said she didn't get it, how this was a parody. Yeah, when I heard Justice Kagan ask that question and say she didn't get it, I think the way she phrased it is something like, maybe I'm the only one here who doesn't get it. And I felt like jumping up and saying, no, I don't get it, too. I don't (laughs) see where the parody is. I mean, I would go so far as to describe this as merely sophomoric humor. And as Groucho Marx would say, that's even an insult to sophomores. I don't see what the parody is. And Mr. Cooper, who was representing VIP products that produced this dog toy, kept saying, you know, it was a parody and trying to explain why. And it wasn't just Justice Kagan. At one point, Justice Jackson chimed in and said she didn't get it either. So this is one of the whole problems with the Rogers test. I mean, what the Rogers test says in its pure form is that the name of a celebrity used in the title of an expressive work does not constitute trademark infringement if it is artistically relevant and not explicitly misleading. And various justices attacked, what does it mean to be artistically relevant? Other justices attacked, what's an expressive work? Is everything that has a statement on a T-shirt an expressive work automatically? And yet one other justice, I believe it was Justice Gorsuch, attacked this concept of what does it mean to be explicitly misleading since the standard under the Lanham Act, the trademark laws, is confusion, not misleading them. And so there seemed to be this consensus on the court that the test was very difficult to understand or apply. And frankly, Mr. Cooper representing VIP products didn't do much to help it. Indeed, he came up with his own test. Well, I would say confusion, misleading, welcome to intellectual property law. Would they ever be able to come up with a test that's easier to follow than the Rogers test. I'm not sure that the Rogers test is easy to follow. I'm not sure that there's an alternative. And this was an issue that was explicitly posed by Justice Jackson, who essentially said, okay, well, what do we replace it with? I um, agree with you, though, that there seems to be a lot of confusion at the court 
on this. And I think it reflects the new makeup of the court. And I've said this before on your show, June, the loss of Justice Ginsburg, the loss of Justice Breyer, were body blows to the Supreme Court with respect to intellectual property jurisprudence. They were the two justices who had experience, academic experience, and judicial experience in copyright and trademarks. None of the current sitting justices do. And it was reflected in the argument. There seemed to be a really poor grasp of how the Lanham Act, which sets out the U.S. trademark laws, works. Questions that to trademark lawyers didn't make any sense. And Ms. Blatt, the counsel for Jack Daniels, did a very nice job of respectfully trying to correct their misunderstanding of fundamental trademark law. But it was a steep mountain to climb. I'm not sure she got there. The Rogers test is not very popular in some quarters, is it? The trademark owners desperately want to get rid of the Rogers test. There is an element within the academic community that wants to get rid of the Rogers test. And the Biden administration, to their credit, in a very simple, plain-spoken but effective argument, said outright that the Rogers test was made up by the Second Circuit, it has no statutory basis, and it should be discarded. That's what's at issue here. And the arguments in favor of eliminating the Rogers test in toto are pretty darn strong. As Justice Thomas asked, what's the textual support for that? And all three counsels said there is none. Justice Alito chimed in, well, what about the First Amendment? And the trademark law that we now have, the Lanham Act, has been held consistent with First Amendment no less than four times. And so it's sort of an odd question, but Justice Alito was the one justice who seemed desperate to hang on to the Rogers test. Three justices, by my count, did not ask a single question, and that was Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, and the Chief Justice. They are all textualists. They are probably looking at this appeal from the point of view that Justice Thomas expressed and may have expressed on the part of all of them, thus making it unnecessary for them to talk. What is the textual support for the Rogers test? And as the government said, there is none. The Rogers test is an exception to illegal activity, and it does not have any textual basis. And therefore, I think it's very much at risk, particularly if this clique of justices who did not engage in debate all vote to remove it. At some point, I thought maybe there were a couple justices who were, you know, fight to the death to keep the Rogers test. But I thought Justice Kagan and Justice Jackson were in that camp. But then after the appellee's counsel got up, they both went after him. They wanted to know, too, where you get this and how does this test work? And, you know, they called it unworkable. Despite all the confusion, what's your take on whether Jack Daniels will win here? It lost at the Ninth Circuit. So the overarching sentiment seemed to be that the Ninth Circuit got this wrong, and that should be reversed. And that would be technically a win for Jack Daniels. The Ninth Circuit decision indeed took the Rogers test and maximalized it, creating a lot of problems. The test had evolved over time to not be strictly limited to the use of celebrity names in titles of expressive works. It had been extended to just run-in-the-mill products, and the Ninth Circuit took that as far as possible here. And I think the sentiment is, based on the oral argument yesterday, that that's wrong, and that's wrong. It was noted at one point that there are four circuit courts. One of the justices said, well, yeah, but Rogers has been accepted by all the circuit courts, and you know, it sort of it seems to be working out there somehow. And the bonds from the government and um, from Jack Daniels canceled. No, that's not true. There are four circuit courts. I think it's the D.C. Circuit, the First Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, and the Seventh Circuit, if I recall correctly, 
who have had opportunities to adopt the Rogers test and said, no, we're not doing that. And I've, I've simply applied the multi-factor test as part of that. So I think where the court's going to go with this is to say the Ninth Circuit got it raw. It's got to go back to the district court, and they've got to consider parity. And then the next part is the question mark. Do they say, we're not going to decide the Rogers question now because this case isn't right. We're going to send it back and let it come back up the chain again. So go back. The district court will again find infringement. Go to the Ninth Circuit. I assume they'll apply Rogers again. And then it'll come up to the Supreme Court. So three years from now, we'll be right here again. So that's one <laughs> option. And it's a favorite option of this Supreme Court. The second option is that Justice Thomas cobbles together five votes to do what the Biden administration wants to get rid of the Rogers test. And so it goes back to the district court with an instruction to consider parity and being told that the Rogers test does not exist. And therefore, when it gets appealed to the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit will have to affirm and it will never come back to the Supreme Court. The third option is that somebody cobbles together enough votes to change the Rogers test. I think that's the least likely outcome here. Indeed, I could see this being one of these decisions where you get five, six votes to reverse and send it back to the district court, and you don't get enough votes on any of the Rogers issues. So that remains undecided. In other words, you don't get five votes on whether Rogers stays, whether it gets jettisoned, whether it gets amended. The camp is just split up. We've seen this before in copyright cases where you had three justices for one thing, three justices for another thing, three justices for yet a third option, and the only thing they agreed on was the result, which was to send it back to the district court. So I think that's probably what I would bet on if I had to bet here that the case will go back to the district court, which is a win for Jack Daniels, but without any guidance on the Rogers test, which would be a shame. A non-decision decision. Thanks so much, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Catanuchin Rosenman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.